Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 to 49. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a golden chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Well, I blame my friend, Peter. Peter Poulton lived at the top of our street. Peter was a year older than I was. I was nine. Peter was aged ten. And Peter could do anything. Peter was amazing. Peter was fantastic at rugby. Peter was fantastic at cricket. Peter was fantastic at football. And it was Peter that said, Dave, you can come and you can play for Grove Park Rangers. Grove Park Rangers, in the town where I grew up, just south of Manchester, were the best boys team in the district. They'd won championship after championship after championship. And so when my mate Peter said, Dave, you can come and play for Grove Park Rangers, that was it. I had arrived in my nine-year-old life. And so the next Sunday afternoon, I put on my best, my only, Manchester United kit. It was the pristine one that we'd won the league championship. Those were the days, the year before. It was bright red, white shorts, red socks. And I went down to the football pitch in the centre of town. There, Grove Park Rangers were warming up for their game that particular morning. I strode onto the pitch. Everybody turned and looked at me. The team gathered round. The coach came onto the pitch and he looked at me and he said, Who are you? I said, I'm Dave. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I've come to play for Grove Park Rangers. By now, I was realizing that something wasn't quite right. I was dressed in my Manchester United kit. Grove Park Rangers played in the colors of West Ham United. Pristine claret and blue shirts, pristine white shorts and pristine white socks. Suddenly, I looked very much alone. 
And I will never forget the coach's look and words to me. He looked at me and said, what do you think you're doing here? And I said, well, my mate Pete, and I pointed him out, he said that I could come and play for Grove Park Rangers. The coach looked at me as if I'd crawled out from underneath a stone and said, I decide who plays for Grove Park Rangers. Get off this pitch. And so in view of everybody, including the opposition, and about 100 spectators who were gathered round the pitch, I had to walk off the pitch. I decided not to stay and to walk home. By the time I got home, my pristine red Manchester United shirt was a much darker colour because it was stained with tears. My dad was working in the back garden. He saw me come by the house. He looked at me and said, what happened? I explained what had happened. And then he looked at me and said, no one talks to my son like that. <laughs> We're going back. No, no, Dad, please don't make it worse. I don't want to go back. We're going back. And so we got in the car and he made me go back to watch Grove Park Rangers and stand on the touchline, where again, I was very conscious that most of the people around had not forgotten what had occurred just before the game, and were looking at this ding-dong on the side of the pitch, dressed in a Manchester United kit. Those words and that experience was actually quite traumatic for me. Even now, 50 years later, I can still remember the scene. I can remember how I felt. I can remember the expression on the coach's face. And I can remember his words to me. I remember the deep, deep shame and embarrassment that I felt. And I remember the humiliation that I felt when my dad made me go back and watch the game. I was thinking about that incident this week. Because I was reading Brené Brown's book, Braving the wilderness. If you've not come across the work of Brené Brown, she's a research scientist, but she's unusual in being a research scientist because she's a research scientist that ordinary people can understand. And she makes her work accessible. And she's done a whole lot of work into the whole area of belonging. And in this book, Braving the Wilderness, Brené Brown takes you through her own particular story of how she has struggled to belong. She tells the stories of her teenage years, when because her dad was in the US military, they moved from town to town to town to town about every two years. So she went from high school to high school to high school to high school, never fitting in, never belonging, because she always had the wrong uniform or the wrong clothes or was always with the wrong group, because she didn't know who the cool kids were. She takes you through her time at college. She takes you through her life in her 20s. She takes her through, you through her, her married life and being a parent, all the time struggling to know how and where she could belong. One of her inspirations is the American poet, singer, and civil rights activist, Maya Angelou. Uh, Maya Angelou, famous for many things, the poem Rise, the book I Know Why the Cageberg Sings, etc., etc. And she's written many, many beautiful things. But there was one particular quote that Maya Angelou had come out with that Brené Brown always struggled with as she thought about belonging. And it was this statement by Maya Angelou. 
You are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. The price is high, the reward is great. And as Brené Brown read those words in her 20s, then over the next 10, 15, 20 years, wrestled with what it was to belong and who she was as she wrestled with her own identity, that quotation stuck with her. And Angelou's statement that somehow you belong no place really got to her. And it rankled with her. Well, after a while, Brené Brown, a few years ago, became famous after doing a TED Talk on vulnerability. She didn't realize at the time that she was going to become famous. And about three years later, she did another TED Talk talking about what it was like to be vulnerable in a TED Talk on vulnerability. She was totally unprepared for her fame and celebrity. And as part of that, she went on the Oprah Winfrey show. And at the end of recording the first episode of the Oprah Winfrey show, Someone in the production team said, would you like to come back to the green room? And Brené Brown said, yeah, I'll just go back to the green room. And she said, there's someone in there that like, would like to meet you. And she said, who is it? They said, it's Mayor Angelou. She said, you're joking. She said, no, it's Mayor Angelou. We're recording an episode with her just after you. So just go and have a sit down, have a drink, and she wants to have a chat with you. And Brené Brown said, yeah, I want to have a chat with her because I want to ask her about this statement. And Brené Brown tells the story against herself that it was only when she sat down with Maya Angelou and allowed Maya Angelou to explain what she meant by this quotation that she fully understood what Angelou actually meant. And Brené Brown realized that she'd taken the first part as the most important. You are only free when you realize you belong no place. And because she was struggling with belonging, because she was struggling with identity, that didn't sit well with her. And she hadn't gone on to realize the depth of what Angelou said in the second half of that quotation. You're only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. The price is high. The reward is great. And Angelou explained to Brené Brown that what she was meaning was that real belonging comes from when you accept yourself for who you are. And when you refuse to allow other people to define who you are. When you refuse to allow your context or your circumstances to define who you are. When you refuse to allow other people's labels or opinions about you to define who you are. When you realize that you can actually belong every place because you are secure in who you are. The price is high, but the reward is great. Somebody said, what we're observing there is deep, deep simplicity on the back of huge complexity. And Angelou's statement that she lived out in her own life is, I think, true. That once you accept who you really are, then you're free to be yourself. When you refuse to allow other people to define who you are and their labels that they put on you, then you can be the person 
that you were always meant to be. And for Christians, ultimately, our identity is not in who other people think we are. Our identity is not found in the job that we do. Our identity is not found in what other people say about us or to us. But our identity is found ultimately in who God thinks we are. Perhaps like me, you can think of a story that happened when you were at school. You might perhaps have been older or younger than I was when I was nine. When somebody spoke something over you, it might have been a music teacher. You cannot sing. It might have been a PE teacher. You aren't a natural sports person. It might have been a maths teacher, it might have been a parent, it might have been a church leader who told you, you can't, you can't, you can't, you won't, you won't, you won't, you'll never, you'll never, you'll never. And you've believed that. Angelou's statement is saying, ultimately it's about recognizing who God thinks that you are. And that knowledge of who God thinks that you are will set you free to be the person that you were always intended to be because ultimately that you know that you are loved, forgiven, accepted, and valued. Well, we pick up the story of Joseph in that passage that Emily read for us a few moments ago is where Joseph has achieved everything that his life up to this point has been leading to. Joseph has just been made Prime Minister of Egypt. He's just achieved the fulfillment of his dreams, those dreams that he had when he was a a 17-year-old spoiled teenager. When he had that dream one night and he saw those sheaves of corn bowing down and he went the next morning and said, Brothers, I had this fantastic dream. I saw all these sheaves of corn, which I think stand for you, and they all bowed down to me. And they said, Thanks for that dream. And then the next night, he had another dream, and he saw the stars and the moon and them bowing down. And again, he went to his brothers, and this time he included his parents. And he said, I saw the stars and the moon all bowing down to me. And and I think, family, that's you. You're all going to bow down to me. And again, his family embraced it and said, thank you so much for sharing that news with us. And now, 13 years later, Joseph has fulfilled those dreams. Now he has been made Prime Minister of Egypt. But it comes, and in various ways we learn in Joseph's life, that he's reached a point where he knows who he is. Gone is the spoilt teenager who made enemies of his brothers and his father. Gone is the victim who had been sold into slavery and trafficked to Egypt who'd been unjustly accused of rape and then thrown into prison. Gone is the schemer and the manipulator who tried to shape events and people to his own advantage. Now, by Genesis chapter 41, Joseph is in no doubt as to who is in charge. When the cupbearer remembers the guy from two years before who had interpreted his dream and, and says that this guy in prison who interprets dreams, he'll tell you, Pharaoh, what your dream means. And Pharaoh is, uh, plucks Joseph out of, of the prison and brings him into his, his court and, and, and charges Joseph with the challenge of, of interpreting his dream. 
Joseph very clearly four or five times indicates who is in charge. He knows he's standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the most powerful nation on earth at that time. But he knows who is in charge. Because four or five times in those first few verses of Genesis 41, Joseph very clearly tells Pharaoh, I cannot interpret your dream, but God can. I cannot know what will happen, but God does. But God does. But God does. But God will. And four or five times, Joseph realizes in a way that he certainly didn't realize when he was a spoilt, entitled teenager, age 17. But 13 years later, he's realized that it's not about him. But it is about God. And he tells Pharaoh that the only way in which he'll be able to interpret his dream is if God gives him the interpretation. The arrogant, entitled teenager has given way to a mature leader who is appointed prime minister of Egypt. We see in verse 41, he is a man restored. He's put in charge of the whole of Egypt. In verses 42 and 43, he has a new position of authority. He's given a signet ring. And that signet ring was the equivalent of being given the keys to the Bank of England. It was the ring that Pharaoh used literally to seal a deal, to be in charge of the exchequer of the nation. He could release funds or keep funds just with that ring. He told him to ride in a chariot, and it was actually quite a technical term when they told people to make way. Literally, it meant bow down, submit, because of who is coming through. And Pharaoh came through in the first chariot, and in the second chariot came Joseph. He was given a new name and a new wife, verse 45, and even his name shows where his allegiance belonged, Zaphonath Peniah which when I read it first thought was an all-black winger, Zaphonath Peniah. But actually, the word itself, the name itself, means something. It means the God who speaks and lives. So even with the new name that Joseph is given by Pharaoh, it's pointing people to God. And then in verse 50, we're told that he has two sons. And again, we're told something about what has happened in Joseph's life and where he is now by the names that he gives to his two sons. He calls one Manasseh. It means the one who has made me forget. The one who has made me forget all my troubles. The one who has made me forget my family. The one who has made me forget my pain. The one who has made me forget all my suffering. The one who has made me forget all the injustice that I suffered. And then the second son is called Ephraim. Literally, again, it means the one who has made me twice fruitful, fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph, by now in his early 30s, has changed, matured, grown. Gone is the loneliness and the fear. Gone is the homesickness and the isolation. Gone is the fear of death and being kidnapped. Now Joseph is Prime Minister of 
Egypt. And he manages Egypt through the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine. Because crucially now, Joseph knows who he is. And he also knows who he isn't. Or, to use the words of Maya Angelou, you are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place. No place at all. The price is high. The reward is great. It's taken 13 years of pain, and the price has been very high for Joseph. It's meant separation from his family. It's meant separation from his land. It's meant separation from his past. It's meant human trafficking. It's meant slavery. It's meant imprisonment. It's meant false accusation and false imprisonment. But now, 13 years later, he realizes who is in charge. Who is in charge of his life and who is in charge of the world. And ultimately he knows who he is because he knows who God is. And he knows who God is and the difference that that makes to how he sees himself. So this evening, a very simple question. Who do you think you are? Not in a way that will lead you to a cheesy documentary that will take you through your family tree in a TV documentary. But who do you think you are? When you think about yourself, what are the words that come into your mind? What are the labels that you give yourself? Is it perhaps expectations that other people have put onto you? Maybe expectations of a parent. Maybe expectations or limits of a parent or a teacher or a church leader like me. Maybe it's a friend who said something about you or to you that stuck with you in a way that is has buried itself deep within your subconscious. And actually, if push comes to shove, that's how you think about yourself. All of us will have those words, those labels, those expectations spoken over us and spoken to us and spoken about us. But the choice is ours whether we believe them or not. Whether we're limited by other people's expectations and observations of who we are, or whether we allow ourselves to be defined not by what people say we are, or not what people think we are, but ultimately only by what God thinks we are. This table reminds us that every single human being is of infinite value to our Heavenly Father. That He thinks you 
and me and every single human being who has ever existed was worth giving the best thing that he could give, his only son. And that when God the Father sees you and sees me, yes, he knows the worst about us. But knowing the worst about us, he still loves us. He still likes us. He still accepts us. He's still willing to forgive us if we acknowledge that before him and ask his forgiveness. Because he gave the best thing he could give, his son, Jesus, to die in our place so that we might know how valuable we are to the Father. There's an amazing verse in the book of Hebrews where it says that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. It's a quite staggering description. The picture is of a party or a dinner party. You go, you arrive with Jesus, knowing no one there. And Jesus says, this is Paul. He's my brother. This is Gemma. She's my sister. This is Dave. He's my brother. This is Emily. She's my sister. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He's not ashamed to call you family. He knows who we are better than we know ourselves. But knowing that, he still loves us. He still likes us. He's still willing to accept us unconditionally and forgive us unconditionally because of this amazing love and grace that he demonstrated on the cross. And the choice every single day for you and for me is who do we think we are? Do we think who other people tell us we are? Do we think, do we believe what that person 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago said to us or about us? Or are we willing to wake up tomorrow morning and believe that we are accepted, forgiven, loved children of a heavenly king who knows us, loves us, values us, and longs for us to be the people that he always intended us to be. Let's pray together.